Well, let's uh, let's begin to, uh, in God's Word today. Uh, we're going to turn in your Bibles to First uh, Corinthians. If you were with us last week, we began a brand new study into this uh, letter to the Corinthians. We call it 1 Corinthians or 1 Corinthians. Uh, but if you recall last week, I mentioned it's not actually the first letter Paul wrote to the Corinthians. There is a one that's uh, earlier to this. Um, and we, we learned that in this letter, that there was a previous letter. But it's a lost letter. We don't have that letter. We just sort of giving some hints about maybe what it contained. Uh, but this is the first letter that we have. Um, and so we call it uh, 1 uh, Corinthians. And last week, we saw that Paul was referring to the Corinthian uh, church as saints. Uh, and he used that term um, of all the believers in Corinth, living. <laughs> he didn't use it of dead believers. Uh, he didn't use it of the holiest of believers. He used it of all believers. All the believers in Corinth he called saints. And what was so remarkable about that uh, is that the church was doing just about everything wrong. <laughs> there were divisions in the church. There was disorder in the church. There were difficulties of, of every kind in the church. And some of those difficulties even stem from extremely immoral lifestyles, um, uh, from, from which many of them had come out of a pagan uh, lifestyle because Corinth was an evil place. It was known for its moral corruption. If you remember, there's a Greek word call, called Corinthias estai. means to become like a Corinthian. And it came to represent gross immorality, drunken debauchery, and, and so it was associated with just one who would be a part of uh, Corinth. And so some of the Christians that were saved there in Corinth um, had not broken out of that pagan lifestyle. They had failed to uh, de-Corinthianize themselves. So the question was, how can Paul refer to these church members as saints? Well, the reason is because they were sanctified in Christ Jesus, and that's what he reminds them of there in those first three verses. That's what we covered last week. Sanctified, if you remember, that means um, set apart, purified. They're, they are hagiazo, is the word, and it refers to their position before God, right? That's how God sees them. God sees them as holy, because not, not because of what they've done, but because of what Christ has done. And so, Hagias, saints, is the appropriate title for one who is hagiazo, sanctified, right? So some of those Christians had not yet made it their practice um, as saints uh, to match their position as saints. And the very purpose of Paul's letter is to exhort them to live up to that, that calling as saints. But before he begins to tackle the particular issues that they're dealing with um, he, in, in the church, which he'll detail in this letter, Instead, he, he details for these believers some of those benefits of being a saint. He called them saints. That's great. And we know what saint means, and, and that's great. But there, is there anything in addition to that? Is there any other benefit to that? Well, you bet there is. And Paul establishes what those things are here in verses 4 through 9. So those, that's our passage today. We're going to cover that. The title of the sermon is uh, Benefits of the Saints. So let's look at cha uh, chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him, in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for this time you've given us to come together, Lord, to, to be in the Word, and we do pray, Lord, that you would bless this time. Lord, your, your Word is not um, uh, inhibited in any way by us uh, communicating it through technology like this. Your word still goes forth. Your word still has power. And Lord, we pray that it would have that power today and that it would reach the hearers you intend it to reach. And but not just their ears, but Lord, may it penetrate their hearts that they might look within and see what they need to change in order to live up to that calling that you've called us all to. Lord, we want to glorify you as a church. And so we pray that you'd help us to do that. Just speak to us today through your mighty word for your glory, not unto us, as we read this morning, not unto us, but for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, let's look at verse 4 to begin with. The first point here um, that Paul is going to make, and really the, the most important benefit, is that God's grace is given to you. That's the first benefit that comes to any believer, any saint, is God's grace is given to you. In verse 4, it says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. Now, we use the word grace a lot, right? As Christians, we throw that around a lot, and we, we act like at least we understand uh, that term. We say, oh, we're saved by grace through faith. I'm saved by grace through faith. Well, you are. And I want to just explore that a little bit deeper, because Paul begins here, and I think this is what we should note here, with a note of thanksgiving. I'm, I'm thankful for the Corinthian church. With all they're doing, right, with all the things they're doing wrong, I'm thankful for the Corinthian church, he says, because they were recipients of God's grace. He is thankful because grace has been given to them. Yeah, they have a lot of problems, but he's thankful because they have that grace. What does Paul mean by that? And really, what do we mean when we speak of God's grace? Uh, well, the word grace is chares. It looks like charis, C-H-A-R-I-S. Chares is how it's kind of pronounced there. Um, and Paul used that same word in his greeting to them in verse uh, 3. We looked at it last week, but we didn't look at it in detail because I knew we'd be covering it in detail this week because he used it in, in verse 3 as the typical Greek greeting that it was. Grace and peace to you. The Greek greeting uh, grace, the Hebrew greeting, peace, shalom, right? But Paul here is speaking of a grace that was given to them by Christ Jesus. The general meaning of the word is favor. That's the general meaning of the word. But whenever scripture speaks of that grace that comes through Jesus Christ, as it clearly does here, it is referring to the undeserved kindness and mercy that's given to sinners. Every single time we see it compared, uh, uh, sorry, given in addition with from uh, Christ Jesus or through uh, Christ Jesus, it is speaking of that mercy that comes to sinners. And I want to say that because I want you to not be confused with common grace. Common grace is the grace that all men experience on earth. Uh, all the benefits that come from God that benefit the human race. There are innumerable daily benefits we all enjoy. The heat from the sun, especially this past week, right? 
the beauty of the ocean, the breath in our lungs, the beating of our hearts, the ability to, to speak and to create, and all of those things are God's grace to all of mankind. If you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about that idea when, when you love your enemies, right, bless them who uh, curse you and, and um, do good to those who hate you, right? He says the reason for that in that verse. He says, because your Father in heaven, he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust, right? He says, because, because God sends the rain to all, the good and the bad, right? So that's common grace. But here he's speaking about saving grace. And it is different because it speaks of that grace that, that saves sinners from God's wrath. That is what grace is. Grace has saved you from the wrath of God. And not all men experience that grace. All men experience the common grace. The sun shines on all of us, except sometimes in Wales. <laughs> but saving grace is not experienced by all men, because ultimately they chose not to receive it. They chose not to believe it. Saving grace is what Paul is talking about here, and he's trying to get the Corinthians to reflect upon the greatness of that saving grace that they received. And I think to properly appreciate God's saving grace, it's important to know that it was given with this understanding in mind. I'm going to give you three things. Um, the first, which you should just already know, and most of you will, and that's this. You did not earn it. <laughs> the first thing you got to understand, grace was given to you. You did not earn it. God did not look upon you and see something that he particularly liked in you and said, oh, uh, I'll choose that one. I'll give that one uh, grace. No, grace is not given to good people because there are no good people. Yes, in relation to each other, there are some people who, who are morally, you know, uh, better than others. But our relationship to the righteousness of God, no, none of us compare. And Isaiah tells us that, doesn't he? He says, your, your righteousness is like filthy rags. So um, we, we tend to think of God as making some kind of distinctions. You know, uh, these people are the good ones. Uh, these people are the bad ones. I mean, the Jews certainly thought that as well, right? Oh, God chose us. And because he chose us, well, we just must be better than all those other pagan nations. But God reminds them in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 to 8. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all the peoples. But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He's reminding them, no, I didn't do it because you were just a great and mighty people. You were the least of all the peoples. I did it because of my love. And I did it because of my promise. He's a faithful God. And yes, the Jews had many blessings and they had many advantages because God chose to reveal himself to them in a special way, but they were not deserving of his love. That's my point. They did not earn that love. Well, you might think, what about later? What about others? What about the Gentiles? Well, Paul handles that in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 10. He says, what then? Are, are we better than they? Not at all. 
For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. That's why later in that chapter, Paul will say, because there's no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know that verse, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But he says that right before, for there is no difference. There's no difference between this group or that group. There's not one holier group here and one more righteous group here. And No, there's no difference. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Let me illustrate this in the way that Jesus did from one of his most amazing parables in Luke chapter 18. If you will turn there really briefly, Luke chapter 18 will begin in verse 10. He tells this classic parable of a morally good man and a morally bad man. And they're introduced to us here in verse 10 of Luke uh, chapter 18. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So there you have the two men introduced to us. Now, just off the bat, you should already have, especially if you were a Jew listening to this, an idea of which was the moral man and which was the immoral man. The Pharisee would be considered the moral man, wouldn't he? The tax collector, right? They were despised by the Jews. They were often dishonest. They often ripped off their brethren, right? He was the immoral man. All right, he goes on, verse 11. The Pharisee stood, the moral man, and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. So what's this moral man doing? He's listing all his righteousness, isn't he? I, I, I'm great. I'm not like that tax collector. I tithe. I give all these things. This is what I do. I'm such a great and righteous man. Look at verse 13. Here's the tax collector. The tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This parable illustrates this idea very, very clearly. Outwardly, it looked like the Pharisee, that's if anyone's going to be, you know, deserving of God's grace, deserving of being justified in the great uh, divine courtroom of God, declared innocent, oh, it's the Pharisee. But God instead looked upon that tax collector because the tax collector recognized his unworthiness. You see, the moral man says, I'm worthy. There's not a more worthy person on the planet. If you look around God and see who you should set your favor upon, oh, it's me. No one prays like I do. No one gives like I do. That's the moral man saying, it's my righteousness. Oh, you should just set your favor upon me. No, no. It goes to the one who realizes he has done nothing to deserve it. Instead, he recognizes that he's unworthy. He says, I'm a sinner. And Jesus says, you're the one that gets the grace. So the first point we have to understand, and we usually get this principle on a basic level, is that grace is undeserved. You did nothing to earn it. But the second understanding naturally follows it, and maybe you don't think about this very often. Because you did nothing to earn it, you cannot pay it back. You can't pay it back. As recipients of God's grace, we're not now uh, confined to a life of servitude, <laughs> right? Paying back this 
a debt for his kindness. You, you are completely indebted to him for his kindness, but you're not in debt. You see, there's a difference. You, you don't owe him anything because you didn't purchase it. You didn't earn it. So you don't owe him. If you had to pay it back, well, it wouldn't be a gift. It wouldn't be grace. And that is what Paul addresses in Romans chapter 4, verse 4. Now, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. If you had to work it off even, well, then you would be referring to it as debt. Like you, you owe him that. That's, that's a wrong way of thinking. That's not how grace works. That is uh, not looking at it as, as a gift. If we earned grace, um, then we would be getting what we deserve, right? Our, our rightful pay, as you do from your employer, right? Who among you, as you're working, when you get paid, goes to your employer and says, oh, thank you for your gracious pay. That's so benevolent of you. How kind of you. Like, no one does that. You say, where's my money, right? I earned it, <laughs> We can't do it with grace either. We didn't earn it, and so we certainly can't, we can't pay it back. Listen to what John MacArthur says about, about this. What makes the message of Christ such good news is that we do not need to pay for salvation. By itself, the truth that we cannot earn salvation would be bad news. That, the very worst of news, because it would leave man entirely hopeless. He's right, right? But grace makes it good news. The very greatest of news, because grace has made it unnecessary to pay for salvation. So our sinful limitations make it impossible, but God's abundant grace makes it unnecessary. God in Christ has paid for it. We have only to receive it through him. Isn't that so good, right? It is true. If it was just that you can't earn salvation, we're all, we're all done for, right? Oh, it's nothing I can do. But grace comes in and says, but it's not necessary for you to earn it because I'm giving it to you. That's, that's amazing. And so when we have grace, we are not indebted to him. Yes, we owe God our love. We owe him our, our devotion. Um, but even that, honestly, it stems from our, our love for him, which stems from his love for us. It still begins with him, doesn't it? First John 4.10 says, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So even, even this deep love for God, oh, just because we're so humbled and we're so, um, we feel so appreciative of what he's done, this amazing gift of grace, that amazing love we have for him, still begins with him because he first loved us. Right? None of us first loved him. It began with him. So listen, understand God's grace. You, you didn't earn it and you cannot pay it back. But there is a third thing, and, and I think a lot of Christians struggle with this. Right, guilt no longer has any place in your life. Guilt no longer has any place in your life. Mankind does stand guilty of sin. All mankind, that is true. Uh, we can't escape our sin. We can't atone for our sin. But God's grace only not only did it remove your sin, not only did it uh, uh, pay the punishment for your sin, but it removed the guilt of your sin as well. Um, your sin was laid on Jesus. Jesus was the one punished, not you. The guilt was laid on him. Psalm 103, verse 12. I read this psalm on Thursday because it was one of David Kinch's favorite. Verse 12 said, As far as the east is from the west, 
so far as he removed our transgression from us. And if he removed that transgression from you, he's removed the guilt as well. So many Christians, I think, carry the guilt with them through the years. Yes, they believe in God's grace theoretically, theologically, they understand it, but practically applying it to their lives failed to do so. Just trapped by guilt all their life. And, and the greatest thing I could share with you is this. Listen, God's grace even removes the guilt. You're not guilty. Don't harbor that for yourself. Oh, I'm still not worthy. Oh, I didn't, I didn't do this. I, I, I didn't earn this. I don't have that. I'm not where I should be. I failed here. All those things. He just says, it's all gone. Yes, we are unworthy. Yes, we all fail miserably as human beings, right? But that's why God's grace, that's why he stepped in. And he gave us grace. And this is why Paul starts here, because he wants us to understand all the things that grace does. It gives you a clean slate. You start completely at ground zero. There's nothing you've brought into this now. You are a new creation, right? Brand new you. So all those things of the past that many of you, I'm sure, hang on to. I know Christians deal with this. They bring these things of the past and they just carry their burdens with them all through their life. You can be done with all that. He's given you a clean slate. That is grace. So be done with your guilt. You no longer need to carry that. So this is not grace an amazing gift. That's just where Paul starts, okay? That's just the beginning. But there are more benefits. Not only did, did God's grace save you, but then spiritual riches are granted to you. That's the second point. Spiritual riches are granted to you. And you see that in verses 5 through uh, the first part of verse 7. Look at verse 5, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge. Just beginning, I want to show you that word enriched. It says you were enriched by him. That word is plutizo, and it means to make rich or given spiritual riches, enriched. Okay, you've been made rich and they are spiritual riches. It doesn't speak of physical ones, uh, material ones, but but spiritual riches, plutizo, and that's important. But the key word here, okay, that's just, I just want you to understand the meaning of that word, but the key word is a very simple word. It's the word in, okay? In. You were enriched in everything, in him, in all utterance. Yes, the word by in our New King James is also the word in, E-N in the Greek. It says, in everything, in him, and in all utterance. The translators just translate the word by there, but they're all the same word. And in is very important, okay? You were given riches in everything in him. That's the idea. Uh, Peter elaborates on that in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. That is the idea, okay? You've been given riches in everything. His divine power has given to you all things. In fact, all is another key word here. You can see it there, all utterance and all knowledge. Okay, Paul's putting those things in there on purpose. In, 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 all, all, okay? This is the idea. It's the expanse of the benefits given to the saints, and that's why I look at the first part of verse 7, so that you come short in no gift, right? You're not lacking anything. And that's the characteristic of these two epistles, First and Second Corinthians, is this idea of the expanse of all the benefits. In fact, 
If you just skip ahead to chapter 3, look at verse uh, 21 and 22. Here's the idea there. Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. You see it there? Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. That is, that is the idea. His, his whole characteristic of these, these two epistles is all these things have been given to you, church, and you're not lacking anything. Paul will say to the Colossians later, you're complete in him. You're not lacking anything. You have everything you need for life and godliness. But we're going to come back to this in a minute, but I wanted you to understand that's the thrust of all this. But notice that he focuses just on two specific categories to begin with. He says, in all utterance, okay, speech. He's talking about speech to begin with here. In all speech. Uh, the word uh, utterance means, it's, it's logos. It's the word logos. And it means uh, speech, discourse, doctrine. That's the idea, okay? So it's speech, and the speech is specific to doctrine, discourse, okay? What this is specifically talking about, and hang with me here, is that every Christian, every believer has been given the ability to share the gospel, to be a witness in that way. Now, hear this. I'm making a distinction here. I'm not saying everyone that has the gift of evangelism. Uh, in fact, biblical evangelism involves, uh, involves more than witnessing. There's more to that, and that's a special uh, gift. But everyone has been given the ability to share the gospel in all utterance, in all speech. Okay, And so Christians, listen, our lives, while you may not be an evangelist, our lives should be characterized by that. Bringing the gospel to unbelievers is the very reason God left you on earth, right? Otherwise, wouldn't he have saved you and then just taken you, right? Why are we all still here? Don't you think about that? Why did, he just, why did he just take us? Why are we waiting to go back? He left you here to continue the work, to share the gospel. And while uh, evangelism strategies and training courses and crusades and those kind of things um, have their place, uh, you, uh, like we were training for, right? We were getting ready to back the whole Franklin Graham crusade and, and we were going to do a, an evangelism course with that. But anyway... Um, those, those have a specific meaning and a place for them, but you're meant to be sharing constantly within your sphere of influence, your coworkers, your neighbors, your friends, your relatives, etc., right? That's, that is your job here on earth. Now, my job as a pastor is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's my, that's my role. Here's what that doesn't mean. That doesn't mean that I need to hold evangelism 101 courses. Now listen, I know that's a lot of people, oh listen, you're supposed to be teaching people how to evangelize and how to do this, so you need to have a, I mean, just think about this. All the things that we think a pastor should be doing, all right? I should be holding evangelism courses, counseling courses, how to feed the poor, how to feed the homeless. How to, I mean, you think about my list. Think of how this could go on and on and on and on, right? If I'm to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, where does my list ever end? And do we see that modeled in the New Testament? What does the early church do? Well, I'll tell you, you never see Peter or Paul say, okay, I've got a class starting next week. Uh, it's Evangelism 101. Make sure you come. I'm going to tell you how to share the gospel. What do we see them doing instead? Well, they're just preaching the gospel. And we see it exemplified in Acts chapter 6, verse 4. Okay, this is what the church leaders determined to be focused on. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. 
We will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. That is the focus of the church leaders, the the first pastors. Two things, prayer and ministry of the word. Now, even as I look at that verse and I share it with you, I'm, I'm convicted because I know that there's one of those areas that I'm not giving myself continually to. Uh, it's an area I've tried to do better at. Uh, with the men, we've been doing praying through Paul. Prayer is that area. I do not give myself continually to prayer because I, I fall into the world's uh, thinking and all the other things the world says a pastor should be doing. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a place for visitation and those types of, types of things because uh, Peter says, shepherd the flock of God among you. We're, I mean, we're to be shepherds. So obviously that entails you know, ministering to the saints. Uh, that, that entails weddings and funerals and, and visitations and those kinds of things. Absolutely. But my point is the focus of the leaders, what should take up the predominant amount of the time of the pastor is prayer and ministry of the word. Now, let me, this is why I'm setting this up. Evangelism. Evangelism is modeled through preaching. It's modeled through the preaching. It's motivated through the prayer and ministry of the word. Does that make sense? We model how that takes place through preaching. Why? What do I do in preaching? I'm just teaching God's word verse by verse, right? Chapter by chapter, book by book. And we see godly saints preaching the word, don't we? So it's, it's modeled through the preaching. But how do we motivate others to do that? Prayer and ministry of the word, the two things that the pastor should be focused on. Um, this is why a great deal of my time does go into each week in preparing the sermon for Sunday, the ministry of the word, because I do believe the power is in the word. I do believe that is what motivates people. I do believe that's what models how we are to live and how we are to act. I don't need to program it out. Churches love programs. And I'm not saying programs are all bad, but we do tend to over-program the church. A program for this, a program for that, right? Go here, do this. When, honestly, I think it's a lot more simple, right? I think we just focus on the Word. So we do offer a youth program, but what's the focus there? The Word, right? We focus on the ministry of the Word. Yes, we'll have some fun and games, and we'll do those things, and there's a place for that, but the focus is ministry of the Word. That's where it is. Let me give you an example. I just, just talking to someone who's been joining us lately, because obviously we're live streaming these, so, so people from all over uh, can join in. All right, this person, just, just because of what we're doing, being faithful to go verse by verse, book by book, right, has just realized that the church they grew up in never taught the Bible. We'd read a verse at the beginning, then talk half an hour about whatever, and then close with a verse. But the word is coming alive, and this person is seeing it for the first time. And now this person's motivated about ministry, right? Tithing to the church, excited about God's word, wanting to be a service, all those things. No one ever sat that person down and says, now you got to make sure you're giving 10% and you got to make sure you're serving and what you get. What's doing it? The ministry of the word, right? The preaching is doing it. The preaching is doing the changing there. I don't need to go and over-program those things. Take this all the way back to the evangelism. This is what I'm trying to say. He's saying, Corinthians, you have been given everything you need to share the gospel. You don't need to go to some course somewhere. You've experienced God's grace. Just take what you've experienced, what you know about God, what you know about his grace, and share it. The word equips you, not Pastor Kevin, okay? So let the word equip you. Now, 
it equips you also in knowledge. And that's the second point. So you got speech and you got knowledge. And he says in all knowledge as well. Now that doesn't mean that you know everything now. It doesn't mean that the minute you get saved, right, you get some sort of like download into your brain <laughs> and now you, you know, Kung Fu, right? You know, you, know, you don't, you, you don't know everything. You are given everything you need though, everything you need to know in order to share the truth uh, of God's word to the world. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 to 10, Paul talks about this. We'll get there, obviously. He says this, But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through what? Through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. God has revealed these things. He's prepared us because he's revealed them uh, to us through his spirit. Now, is that not what God, uh, Jesus was talking about with those disciples in the upper room? When he said to them, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. Isn't that what he's talking about? Well, Paul's saying that's happening. Let me remind you where that was. It was John 16, 13. Jesus said these words. However, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will tell you things to come. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. He's going to guide you into all truth, okay? He's going to do that. Now, he's going to do that through uh, the Word. Consistent, diligent study of God's Word. You're not going to sit down and just by osmosis sort of absorb like the Spirit just giving you knowledge. I'm getting something here. I'm getting something, Okay. No, we do it. We do it through opening God's word. We do it through reading His word, through the study of His word, and that's why Paul tells Timothy in Second Timothy two fifteen, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. It it does take diligence, and he says if you if you're just diligent to do that, you'll be an approved worker of God. Now listen, that's not a verse just for pastors. That's not a verse just for uh, biblical scholars. It's a verse for all believers. We're to be diligent, to present ourselves approved to God, not ashamed, right? Knowing how to divide the word of truth, that just, that just means dig into God's word, love it. In 1 Peter 3.15, he tells us as well, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. You got to be ready to answer that question. Why do you, why do you have such joy in the midst of this pandemic? Like how, how can you have hope, right? How can you, well, let me just tell you, let me tell you about my savior, Jesus, right? You should be able to know enough to be able to share them the basic truth of the gospel. And if you can't, I will be so bold to say, as you probably haven't experienced God's grace. I, I ran and led a youth ministry for, for four years, and I began to really be concerned about how many of these kids that are sitting here day in and day out really are saved. I really don't know. And I just as an experiment for myself, I began to pull some of them aside. I told them I was doing a little video. I was just asking them 10 questions, but it was for me. And I asked them, all right, just in your own words, just in, in, you know, in, in a minute, you know, just give me the gospel. I, can, I cannot tell you, most of the kids sat there and scratched their heads. I remember one of them just like, did this kind of thing like, oh, that's a hard one. Like I just asked him, you know, where did Adam have a belly button, right? I mean, I just, I didn't ask him anything. Just, just tell me the gospel. And he couldn't do it. We should be able to share 
what we've experienced by God's grace, right? If we're truly believers, if we truly receive that ourselves, and we should know how to answer somebody there. Now, listen, some of you are already thinking like, oh, you're trying to guilt me into sharing the gospel. I'm just not that kind of person. You know, I've always felt unable to share. I'm shy. I'm not good around crowds. I'm not good among people. Like, hey, listen, the disciples were the same. Okay, remember what Jesus said to them. He said, you need to, you know, remain here in Jerusalem, but, but you're going to receive power. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes to you, right? And then we see that happen at Pentecost. We looked at that a few weeks ago, right? And they receive power. And next thing you know, Peter is, is preaching boldly and 3,000 people are saved. But, but listen, they didn't always maintain that boldness. Peter and John were arrested later on and uh, commanded by the Sanhedrin not to teach in the name of Jesus. Do you remember what they did? It tells us that they prayed for boldness to share the gospel. In Acts chapter 4, verse 29, it says, Now the Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. That's Peter and John praying, Lord, help us, even amongst their threats, to just be bold. Because they, they were filled with human fear. Like, oh, we got to be bold. Like, the apostles did that. They had to pray for boldness. Don't you think you could too? Even Apostle Paul, he asked the Ephesian elders to pray um, for his ability to share God's word. Ephesians 6, 19, he says, And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. He said, pray for me, that I'll have that speech, that I'll, that I'll open my mouth. I mean, sometimes we just don't feel like opening our mouth, right? We're just shy. We're scared to do it. This is Paul. You guys, these are heroes of the church, right? The founding fathers of the church. And they had to pray for boldness. So listen, we just need to be willing to be used by God's by God in, in this way, because, listen, we're being told here by Paul that he's given us both the words and the knowledge, the speech and the knowledge, and we should be able to go forward and share the gospel. And if you're timid and you're scared about it, pray for boldness. The apostles did. In fact, it goes on. He's given us all that we need to serve him effectively. Skip down to verse 7. We'll come back to of verse 6 to the second, just that first part, so that you come short in no gift. I mentioned this earlier, you're not lacking anything at all. Now, you might be wondering then why the church was doing so, so poorly, right? They have all these benefits and they have all these gifts, right? Why, why are they so terrible? Well, God had provided the gifts. That doesn't mean that they were necessarily using them, right? That happens to us as well. In fact, here, the word um, gifts is charisma. It looks like charisma, C-H-A-R-I-S-M-A, charisma. But it's derived from the, the term for, for grace. Remember, we looked at charis, uh, grace. It's charisma here. And the English word charismatic, right? That's what it sounds like, comes from the, the plural use of the word uh, charismata. So you had here these Corinthians maybe not aware of their gifts or using them in the wrong way, or even, you'll see, seeking gifts they didn't have. And this charismatic word, right, refers to something that I want to clarify here. Biblically speaking, because it's been tainted by what we know as charismatic in the world. Biblically speaking, it refers to the endowment by God of gracious gifts of his people to minister to the church. That's what it means. God has endowed us gracious gifts. It's all coming through his, his, his grace. It's been given to his people, so his saints, so that we can minister to his church. All right? 
Those are all those other gifts. Now, we have the gifts of utterance and knowledge so that we can share gifts, those things to the world, but we have other gifts that minister to the church. In fact, the predominant amount of gifts, we'll get to that section, is for the ministry to the church, to minister to one another, not to the world. And we do minister to the world, but the majority of the gifts he gives us is to strengthen the church. So this is what he's talking about. Now, it doesn't refer to extraordinary gifts that are given to maybe the most holiest or righteous or spiritual people on the planet. It doesn't refer to those that are more advanced in faith, charismatic. It doesn't refer to those things as as the charismatic movement would have us to believe. It doesn't refer to gifts that you must seek and try to, to ask for because all believers have been endowed by God with charismata. <laughs> That's what Paul makes absolutely clear here at the beginning. It's so funny. By the time we get to the spiritual gifts chapter, people forget about chapter one. Paul sets this up at the beginning. You have been given everything. In fact, you're not lacking anything. Let me illustrate this in a very simple way. When you're born physically, you are not born missing parts that will grow in later. Praise God. You're not born with like no legs, uh, looking like some sort of polywog or something, right? And the parents are like, oh, I can't wait till he gets his first leg, <laughs> right? And the leg grows in. Right? Now, yes, teeth and those kind of things and hair, but those things are uh, temporary. I, w- I would wish my teeth would be more permanent, but there will be a day where I'll be manufacturing teeth, <laughs> right? Um, and, and for some people, the hair permanency is already a problem, right? But in terms of the structure of our bodies, we have all the parts we need. You got the fingers and the toes and the arms and legs, the eyes, all those things are there. It is no different spiritually. You are born with everything you need. You're not hoping that one day you'll grow another piece or another piece will be added on. What is the difference? You mature. Your physical body matures. It grows, doesn't it? In maturity. Same with your spiritual um, body. You grow in maturity. You're not missing a part. You don't get a part added to you. It just grows. So listen, I, I have... I have a concern, and this is why I'm just going to address it briefly, that there are people who focus on the idea that there are gifts that we haven't tapped into yet, and that you just need to pray extra hard and pray extra long, and maybe God will hear you, and he'll, he'll give you that gift if you, if you pray enough for it. I, I had to tell you that scripture doesn't speak to that. It doesn't say you need to pray for some extra gift. I don't believe there's a second definite work of grace. I think there's a one definite work of grace. Grace right? By grace, you've been saved. And when grace comes, you have all that you need. You're not lacking anything. you got it all. I'm concerned because I know that that happens in certain charismatic movements and things like that, but it's even starting to creep into uh, a little bit of even Calvary chapels. You got to be careful. You just got to be careful how these things come uh, come down and and be discerning when you hear those things. Um, We do believe uh, the gifts are all good for today and can be used, but I don't believe that you need to seek extra gifts. I believe you're given everything that you need um, at the beginning. And if you're not experiencing something and you're not seeing your gifts being used, the fault never lies with God. You cannot end your days saying, well, I prayed all my life that I would get this gift and never got it. I guess God just didn't. You have everything you need. The fault always lies with the person, right? It's due to our ineffectiveness, our, our inability to cleanse our, ourselves of sin, our laziness, Um, It's never because we're lacking something from the Lord. The believers in Corinth 
We're not in need of further spiritual blessing by God. Paul never gets to the point to say, well, hopefully God will see fit to bless you with the stuff you do need because, you know, otherwise you're really up a creek. No, he's saying here at the beginning, you have everything you need so that you can be living the way you should be living. God has provided that. Simply what they were doing, they weren't utilizing the gifts they've been given. The same is true of us today. Don't pray for an additional spiritual blessing in order to be used by God in some extra effective way. Just recognize that you come short in no gift. Identify those gifts and begin using them. You're not spiritually incomplete. In fact, Colossians 2.10, I'll show you the verse here. Paul says, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Isn't that good news? I hope that's freeing to you. I hope you're like, wow, I do have everything. I need. I'm not incomplete. You know, you're not incomplete. You have it all. You have, you're complete in him. You're just going to grow. You're going to mature, right? So the presence of these gifts we see here confirm Paul's testimony about Christ. Let's go back to verse six to see that. Look at verse six. Even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. So, confirmed, let's look at that word first. It's bebaio, bebaio, and it just means to establish or to make firm or make sure, right? It makes sure those things. So, yes, these believers in Corinth had believed Paul's testimony about Jesus Christ and believed it unto salvation. But when was their belief confirmed? Does that make sense? Like, when did they know that they were saved? When were they sure? Well, Paul says it here, when they received the gifts. When they receive those things, it is a mark of the Holy Spirit's presence. Otherwise, how do you know if you're saved? Right? If you don't see any of the Spirit's work in your life, if you don't see the gifts. I'm astonished how many people all their lives have been involved in a church and never, never served. You ask them like what their gifts are, no clue, never, never used a gift. And I would just wonder like, how do you even know that you're saved? Because that's one of the things that tells you it's confirmed. It's made sure. That's what he's saying here. Even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, I shared to you about Christ. You believed in Christ, but God proved it to you when you got the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's saying there. In fact, that's what he tells the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory? There it is, right? The Holy Spirit is the seal of of the promise. He's the guarantee of your salvation. So wouldn't you want to know if you have the Holy Spirit? If someone asked you today, hey, do you have the Holy Spirit in you? Would you really go, I'm not sure. Well, then you wouldn't have surety of salvation, would you? You know, you should be sure. How do you know you have the Holy Spirit in you? You can't see him. Well, two things. Spiritual fruit is one, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Those things should start to manifest themselves in your life. Spiritual fruit. And the other thing is spiritual gifts. They confirm that you indeed have the Holy Spirit. So those such an important section, folks. So I just want to make sure you're grasping all of that. But let's look to the third point. So not only 
um, is grace given to you and spiritual riches granted to you, but your future with Christ is guaranteed to you. Amen to that. And that's the second half of verse 7 to the end. Look at verse 7. Eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, notice that the saints here are eagerly waiting. Eagerly waiting. Now, I think a lot of people look to the waiting and say, oh yeah, this means to kind of sit and and wait, uh, like you're waiting for a bus to come and pick you up. But that's not the idea. We're not to sit idly by passively waiting. It means to wait with eager anticipation. That's why we have eagerly there, right? Anticipation. Anticipation of what? The revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, revelation, you should remember that word from our study of revelation. Revelation is apocalypsis. Apocalypsis, right? That's where we get the word apocalypse from. Apocalypse. And when we think of the book of Revelation and we think of that Greek word apocalypse, what comes to mind? Chaos, destruction, Armageddon, right? Giant flaming things falling from the sky. No, the word simply means unveiling. That's what the word means, appearing. We established that when we went through the book of Revelation a few years ago. The book of Revelation is about the appearing of Jesus. We focus, oh, the book of Revelation is about the end. No, it's not about the end. It's about Jesus. In fact, the whole Bible is about Jesus. Let me just say that. But the book of Revelation is about Jesus and his appearing. So we're eagerly anticipating the appearing of Jesus Christ. How do we do that? How do we do that? Well, you might remember there is another parable that Jesus tells. We don't need to look it up. I'll just recap it to you. It's the parable of the talents, right? And Jesus hands out these talents to uh, uh, different servants, uh, five to one, two to another, and one to another. But there's two stewards or servants that are rewarded for their use of those talents. And they're rewarded equally, uh, even though they were given different number of talents, right? One servant was given five and the other was given two. But they both received the same reward. The reward was this, Jesus telling them, well done, good and faithful servant, right? You've been faithful with a few things. I'll make you rule over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. That's the reward. Both of them received the same reward, even though they were given different talents. But there was the third servant who was given one talent. He did nothing with it. And this is what Jesus says about him. Cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Wow. What is this parable trying to tell us? What is this about? Well, ultimately, this parable is about faithfulness. Faithfulness. We tend to read this parable and look at that third servant and just say, oh, well, he was just lazy um, and he didn't use his talent when he should have. And so, you know, uh, he didn't get a reward. But if that is true and that's all it was, then the punishment doesn't seem to fit the crime, does it? Enter into the joy of the Lord, but you, darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth, which Jesus always uses in reference to what? Hell. So how can it be simply that there was just a lazy Christian and he just didn't do enough? And so uh, Jesus thought, well, that wasn't enough. I was hoping you'd be here and you were here. So out you go. No, 
Ultimately, this servant wasn't just found to be lazy. This servant was found to be a hypocrite, unmasked for who he really was. He was unfaithful. He really didn't trust in God at all. He pretended to be one. He pretended to be a servant. And so the parable here is about someone who is an unfaithful person at heart. But the eager anticipation of the Lord should be uh, characterized by an eager desire by his true servants to hear those words, well done, a good and faithful servant. That, that, that is a character trait of the true uh, believer. And Jesus, upon, upon finding that person, finding him faithful, will confirm us to the end. That's what he's saying here. He'll confirm you to the very end. Establish us to the end is what he's saying. That same word uh, is being used, confirm. Make sure of your salvation to the end. And present you before the Heavenly Father as what? Blameless. Blameless. It's an affirmation of how we are now, right? That's how we're counted. We're saints. We're holy. He looks at us as blameless. So this is what he's saying. He looks at you now. You're counted as holy, but listen, listen, he's going to confirm that. He's going to make sure of that to the very end. I mean, there'll be one day. It's not going to be just positionally, right? You will be fully blameless. That's the idea here. It will be affirmed. Amazing. That's when the day of our Lord Jesus Christ comes. He will present us fully blameless. And that is the goal of the church. This is a letter to the church. Jesus wants a holy church. He wants a spotless bride. And that's what Paul talks about in Ephesians 5, verse 27, that he might present her, the church, to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. That is Jesus' desire for his church, for his people. And Paul is establishing all these things at the beginning, right? Listen, Listen, you've been sanctified. God has made you holy. You are saints. And in addition to that, he saved you by grace. And he's given you all these amazing, amazing benefits. And in addition to that, he's made your future with him secure. Okay, so not only are you counted as, as blameless now, not only is that your position and now, and do you struggle to fit that practically in your life, right? But that will be one day fully realized. Isn't that incredible, folks? And so he's saying, so let's strive for that now. That's what he's trying to get them to see. Now, how, how do we know all that's true? Right? In the end, really, really, what is it? What do we take with this? How do we know that's going to happen? Well, verse 9 is there for us to, to know. God is faithful. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. If it had anything to do with you, <laughs> if it had anything to do with your church or your church leaders, right? we would be in trouble <laughs> because we're not always faithful. If this was established on any, in, in terms of where you are, ge you know, geographically, right? If it, it happened to do with uh, where your church was located, I mean, Corinth would be in trouble, right? If he says at, at the end of this, he's like, but I hope it works out because after all, your church is in Corinth and it's a pretty wicked city. Good luck, right? No, he doesn't say that. He's like, okay, listen, all that's going to happen. Why? Because God is faithful. It all has to do with him. It's God who called them as saints because he's faithful to that call. He, then the future glory with Christ will be certain as well. That's the point there. And that's what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8, 
right? Verse 30, you guys are familiar with this verse. He says, moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What part do you have in that verse? Where are you there? You're not there, are you? He does it all. He predestined, he calls, he justifies, he glorifies. He does it all. God is faithful from the beginning to the end. Ultimately, we're saved because God wants to save us. He does not change his mind along the way. He's faithful. That's the idea. In fact, Paul, in closing his letter to the Thessalonians, he says this in chapter 5, verse 24, he who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. God called you. He called you for a reason. He called you to be saints. And it's not as if somewhere along the way he's going to say, well, I hoped you worked out, but you didn't do good enough, and so you're gone. No, he says, you're faithful because I'm faithful. God is faithful. He's the one that will keep us faithful. And we can be certain then that we will enjoy eternal fellowship, koinonia, oneness, partnership with Jesus. That's what he's speaking about there. You will have that. God saved us and brought us into that fellowship and it's grace that keeps us there. Grace saves us. Grace keeps us there. It's all about God's grace. Well, we cannot enjoy this fellowship with Christ that he's talking about while being at odds with other church members, other members of the body. And it's on that note that Paul will transition and begin to address the issues of divisions in the church. And that's what we'll begin looking at next week. Let me pray. God in heaven, thank you so much for your word and for this rich and beautiful opening to Paul's letter to the Corinthians. What a great reminder to his church here in Cardiff and his church around the world. God, your church, your saints, who you have sanctified. Lord, you didn't just call us and just leave us to wander about. You, you gave us everything that we need to live this life in a way that glorifies you. And yes, Lord, you desire for us to be the perfect and spotless church. We won't be this side of heaven, but we certainly can strive to be through the power of your Holy Spirit and all that your Spirit brings to us. And I pray for your church, Lord. I pray that we would not be uh, lazy. Lord, I pray that we would not, Lord, fail to use our gifts and identify those gifts and use them for your glory. There is no such thing as a lazy Christian. Lord, we're, we're, we're meant to be eagerly anticipating your return, and that means preparing for your return. We want to hear those words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Oh, Lord, help us. Help us to be that kind of a church, Lord. Remove anything from us that hinders us uh, from um, Lord, walking this, this life, walking with Christ uh, the way we're meant to. Lord, even in terms of grace, maybe dragging along baggage of guilt that we don't need. Lord, may we just humbly and graciously receive your grace. Grateful, thankful for your wonderful gift to us. And go forward with just an eager desire to please you because of our love for you. And Lord, may we strive to be that holy and blameless church, particularly in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation. Oh Lord, I thank you for your word, and I pray that 
you'd be glorified in each and every one of us today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.